Okay, if you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Since we have a baptismal service tonight, I'm going to talk about baptism and its symbolism and uh, what it actually means to, uh, to us. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You know, and the idea, of course, he's building on chapter 5 where he said, you know, some were saying, you know, that, you know, since there's grace, it doesn't matter how we live. So shall we just live in sin that grace may abound? And he says, perish the thought. That's what God forbid means. Um, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planned together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ be raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died in the sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So the title of the message tonight is Walking in the Newness of Life. Walking in Newness of Life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. We thank you that you have, we have your very words of God preserved for us in our language, and I pray, Father, that as we look into the Word of God tonight, that we would allow the Word of God to speak to our hearts through your Spirit, and, 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 and um, Lord, we'd be submissive and sensitive uh, to Him and His leading, that we'd worship you in the Spirit and in truth, and uh, your Word would go forth in demonstration of Spirit and power, and you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> of course... You know, in modern Christianity or contemporary, typical Christian of the day, believes, as taught by many, that we are saved by grace and how we really live doesn't matter. Uh, the doctrine of practical wholeness in life is outdated or considered archaic. Uh, of course, chapter 5, Paul declares that you know, what we have in Christ, justification by faith, chapter, and it declares what we are, but what we will, you know, what we have will not do us any good unless it translates into practical living. You know, if the gospel doesn't affect your life, it's really of no consequence. That's really the, the, the point. Um, as one man said, if your religion is not, it's just like everything else, then it's of no consequence. If they're all the same, you know, a lot of people say, well, all religions lead to the same place, or all religions lead to, the, lead to God. No, they don't. If they're all the same, none of them are of any consequence. There's only one true religion, 
And that's Bible religion. That's Christianity, Bible Christianity. And, of course, there's a lot of what's called Christianity out there today that is not Bible Christianity. It's false Christianity. So, uh, you know, chapter 5, we could say, answers the question of guilt before God. Chapter 6 declares we have power over our passions, over our flesh, really is what it boils down to. And, of course, God has extended abounding grace or abundance of grace. Chapter 5, verse 20 tells us that. Moreover, the law entered the defense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know, there is an abundance of grace, and God is able. You know, you know we know the reality of our Christian life is we know that we fall short many times. We know that we do sin, and there's still an abundance of grace to forgive us and cleanse us, but also to help us to overcome our habitual sins of light. But, so, as we think about this, in this chapter there are, there are three ye's. Verse 3, it says, know ye. Verse 11, reckon ye. And verse 13, yield ye. So, we're going to look at those three ye's tonight. First of all, know ye, verse 3. It says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. You know, God wants us to have knowledge and understanding of what baptism is. And it's, you know, baptism is so, um, like many things, you know, salvation, even salvation has become, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a you, you answer this so many questions and then, and then you bow your head and pray and, and you're safe. You know, it's, it's been so simplified and so uh, emptied of its power that it really, is kind of meaningless. It's lost its, it's lost its authority. It's lost its reverence. Uh, and baptism's like that. It's just something else you do. You know, I've seen, seen uh, on church websites, you know, if you want to be baptized, sign up here. Uh, so like, you know, churches around Christmas and Easter around here all advertise, come and have the Lord's Supper with us. So, so really, the Lord's Supper and baptism have totally lost its significance because they're inviting anyone and everyone to come do it. So what does it mean? But as we, so as we think about that, the purpose or symbolism of baptism is, of course, the, you know, baptism is a burial, and there's three metaphors or word pictures it uses to explain this, and they all picture death. Every one of them. Death. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him. You don't bury living people. No, you bury dead people. So we're buried with him by baptism into death. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead, from the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. You know, Christ died to pay for the sin, of, uh, for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again the third day. Uh, so here we have the, the, the picture of buried. We have also planted in verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And again, if you plant something, you bury it. So it's a picture of death. If you, if you, you know, you that have planted gardens or done any kind of farming, you know, you put a seed in the ground and that seed has to die to bring forth a plant. 
And that's what baptism is. It's a picture of you dying to self and resurrecting to a different life. Not for yourself. But for, you know, and he talks about in the newness of life, uh, or walking in the newness of life, and, and we're, we're, we're raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father that we should also walk in the newness of life. Uh, and so... You know, Jesus said in John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn and wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And when you, again, when you plant a seed in the ground, it dies, and it dies to give forth new life. And you always expect more from that seed than one seed. Or it's a total flop. I mean a total flop. If you don't get more than one seed, it's a total flop. I mean, we've had some poor crops on the farm. But we never had just got back what we planted. Never. And so God God desires that we bury our own life and we resurrect a new life to bring forth fruit on our own life and in the lives of others. And we'll see that in a little bit here, how that works. It also speaks of being crucified with him. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, crucifixion was a terrible, it was, it was, it was cursed, you were, you, know, you were considered cursed to be crucified, but it was a, a terrible form of death, that being put to death. And, and, and of course, again, it, sp- it speaks of death, but uh, it speaks of, of dying to self. And, of course, this crucifixion or, you know, crucifixion was considered a curse or a reproach. And this was easily understood by the early churches and still by some Christians in some parts of the world. But here in America, we have a hard time understanding this, 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 this symbolism. You see, it symbols, it pictures a cutting off of the old life with its passions, with its false religion. And the Jews understood this very clearly because for the Jew in that day, it meant, it may have meant loss of family, loss of job, loss of position. I can guarantee you that when Nicodemus came forth with Joseph and Mary of Mathia, and prepared spices for the burial of Jesus Christ, he was kicked out of the Sanhedrin. He was kicked out. He was no longer part of the ruling class in Jerusalem. See, Jews don't care if you talk about Jesus. Just don't be baptized. That was it. Because that meant you were... That meant you were forsaking Judaism. You were forsaking the temple worship, and rightly so. And they would cut you off. And, you know, Jews to this day do this kind of thing. I mentioned this before. There was a guy, by the name of, his last name was Shaw. I, I'd met him a couple times at a preacher's fellowship in Altoona, and he was a Jew who had gotten saved. And he joined the Baptist. He got baptized and joined the Baptist church. And when he got baptized, his parents had a literal performed a burial service for him. 
No, you know, they obviously didn't bury him, but he was disinherited. He was disowned, you know, and, and so it, it meant, it meant hardship. You know, this is, this is why we have in Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6, you know, Barnabas selling land and Anasphira selling land and bringing it to the apostles' feet to distribute to everyone that had need because there were a lot of Jews without income all of a sudden. Because on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them got baptized. So this was a reproach. You know, Jesus, or the Bible says in Hebrews, we're to go forth without the camp bearing his reproach. See, it, to many in, in Bible times, it was a reproach to the world. They were reproached by the world to follow the Lord and be baptized. You know, in, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter told them to repent and be baptized. And it meant, again, renouncing Judaism, renouncing temple worship, and everything associated with it. And it came at great cost. So, this is, the, this is the thing he says, know ye. Know ye that baptism pictures death to yourself. But also, baptism pictures new life. Again, there's three words to describe that. In verse 4, there's newness of life. Newness is a, a, a newness of state or condition. It is different than the old life. You know, the Lord gives meaning and purpose and direction for life. We are not without a guide or without a standard. You know, most of the world doesn't know where to go, what to do. They don't have direction. They don't really have a philosophy of life because they don't have an authority. They just decide as they go. You see, we have an authority. We have a standard that instructs us how to live, how, how we make decisions. It governs our life. And it's a book of righteousness, of righteous acts and, and doing righteous things. You know, so we have, a, we have a standard and a consistency from the Word of God. Based on truth and the law of God. And so this is a newness of life. You know, in, in, in Israel... At that time, just like it is today in false religions, religions change their beliefs. You know, it used to be if you were Mormon, you weren't supposed to drink Coca-Cola until the Mormons bought stock in Coca-Cola. You know, it used to be in Catholicism, Um, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get uh, you couldn't uh, uh, trying to think what it was. I was trying to remember, but you know they they well you think about it they their philosophy or their teachings have changed through the years. They begin they add things. For example, Mary worship Mary worship didn't start or the immaculate conception of Mary that she was a virgin all her life didn't come to the Middle Ages. And Catholicism was in full sway by about 500 A.D. So things change. Jehovah's Witnesses have changed. You know, it used to be they were the 144,000. 
except now there's more than that of them. So now it's just there's a select few that are 144,000. The rest of them are, are, you know, I guess something else. I'm not sure what they're supposed to be. But, you know, you know, religion changes, but the Bible does not change. There's consistency to it. There's an authority that does not change. There's also, it speaks of resurrection likeness. In, in verse 5, he says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, so we're buried like he was buried, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, what, was, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the likeness of his resurrection? Well, in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, it says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, this was the same man who before the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, was embarrassed to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here he is, standing before the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and he's as bold as Jesus was. You know why? Because he has resurrection power. It's not just him anymore. It's the Spirit of God, and, and, and through the power of the resurrection of Christ, that has given him new life, new power. And he's as bold as Jesus was. And, and that, you know, really what they're saying is, you know, he's just like him. And we thought we got rid of him. He's preaching the same thing. He's demonstrating the same, same love for sinners. He's telling them that they need to repent and be born again. That's what Jesus did. Likeness. And there was nothing they could do to accuse them of of evil. Third word is destroyed. If you notice in verse 6, verse 6 of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So, you know, baptism pictures new life, it pictures resurrection likeness, it pictures for us the destruction of the old man. The word destroyed means to render idle, unemployed, inactive, or inoperative. You know, unemployed means you're out of work. And, and what we're to do is to reckon the old man out of a job. In other words, he is to no longer control us. He no longer has power over us. He's, what that is, is really, we're to render the body, the flesh, as an instrument of sin, as an instrument of governing our life, out of a job. You know, the body isn't done away with, not the material body, but the body so forth as an instrument of sin, uh, it should... It, it, it can cease to be that instrument of sin. This is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where he says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, that by any means, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself 
might be a, should be a castaway. So Paul said, I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection. I bring my body into subjection to the Spirit of God that dwells within me, so it no longer governs me. I put it out of work, out of a job. You see, his body used to control him. When he was on, his road, on the road to Damascus to torture and, and, and arrest Christians, his body was controlling him. His body was governing him. But when he got saved and baptized, he said, I've put it out of a job. It no longer controls me. I've rendered it in idle. The word here doesn't mean eradicated. It means rendered idle. Rendered idle. The old man's still there. We have to render it idle. We're to reckon it. This is the third word. Reckon, he says uh, also to reckon ye. If you notice and drop down to verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, so so if, uh, we are to reckon, and that reckon means to account or to compute. Uh, you, know, you, you know is information, this is considered calculation. It's like to compute it. Uh, and the knowledge we possess is now to become the basis of definite and decisive action. So, okay, now you know it, now it's time to put it into practice. That's the idea. You know, we are to be considered dead to sin, buried and raised to walk, raised up to walk in newness of life, and should not serve sin. We are to be freed from sin. And so we, we are to live unto God, and we are to reckon it so. In other words, to count it so. Uh, so that we have the privilege to new and victorious life. So we're to reckon or declare or to compute that we are dead. That the old man is dead. Notice verses 7 and 8. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. You know, Jesus will never die again. He only is going to die once. Death hath no more dominion over him because he's conquered it. He's come forth from the grave and he's, he's reigned victorious over that. So he'll never die again. And, and so, uh, like as Christ was raised from the dead, we should also should walk in innocent life and consider our old man dead. We're to reckon it to be so. We died unto sin when he died unto sin. Therefore, it is not necessary for us to submit to it. Do you know that dead people don't sin? And we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Again, that's, a, that's a, an accounting term. So we're to declare it. We're to act it uh, because it is so. He has made it so. When we put our faith and trust in Him, He has made it so that we don't have to serve sin. Now, somebody said this, quote, Reckoning is not acting if it were, as if it were so. It is acting because it is so. It is not pretending. Many people act like they never sinned. 
That's false optimism. We're not to act as if, but because it is, and act on the facts. You know, and what that means is we have to make, we are to make choices, surrendering, yielded, and, and we'll get to the yielding part, but being yielded to the Spirit, we, we're no longer governed by the, the flesh, but by the Spirit, that, and it's the Spirit of God, it's the life of God that is in us if we're born again, and that power is greater than the old man. If you, if you will yield to it. That's the key. We also see that we are to reckon that we are alive unto God. Verse 11, again, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So dead to sin is only half the story. That's the negative. That removes the penalty. Alive unto God is the positive, which gives us the power over sin. Your strength and power always lie in the realm of life. You know, flowers open toward the sun, but only one flower follows the sun continually. You know what that is? The sunflower. Wherever the sun goes, that sunflower moves its head, follows the sun continually. You know, we need to be like that sunflower. Wherever the word of God takes us, we need to go. You know, John 1, 4 said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 9, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Colossians 3, 1 and 4, If ye be, then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So wherever he goes, we're to follow him. We're, the idea is we're to be always looking to him for the wisdom and decisions that we need to make in life. He's to be the governor of our life, the Lord of our life, the king of our life. You know, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If someone asked George Mueller the secret of his distinguished service to Christ, and it was distinguished, he was a man of faith. And he said this, quote, There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will, Died to the world in its approval and censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved unto God. Unquote. You know, when you are dead to sin and dead to the world and alive unto God, what others do does not move you. When temptations you come, you say, I'm dead. When injury or insult, I'm dead. 
Dead men don't exhibit bad tempers, are not vindicative, do not respond to the desires of evil solicitor. You see, because our penalty for sin is removed in the death of Christ, we are empowered by his resurrection to live unto God, and our motivation should be studying to show ourselves approved unto God. That is what should motivate us. The love of Christ, Paul said, constraineth us. It compels us. You know, too often we are worried about what the world thinks. You know, we read, study our Bible, and then we go out, go out the door wondering, I wonder if the world likes us. You know what? We shouldn't care. We shouldn't be worried if the world likes us. By the way, if you are a child of God and living to please God, the world will have great respect for you. They may not like everything you do. They may not appreciate you trying to witness to them. But deep down in their soul, they will be thankful that you do care about them because you will care for them. If you don't care for sinners, you're not living to please the Lord. Because Jesus had compassion upon the multitudes. You know, we shouldn't worry about whether the world liked us. You know, Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you are of the world, the world will love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And the world is never satisfied with little compromise. You know? Then they're not gonna they're not gonna be satisfied. You know, just like the world it, the, the, the the gun control movement is not satisfied, will not be satisfied with taking assault rifles. You know, they've let the cat out of the bag. Their intention is not just to take assault rifles, they want to take all guns. The sodomite crowd is not satisfied with just being tolerated and even put on equal rights. They've already got extra rights. What they want is to indoctrinate our children. That's their desire. Ladies, the world isn't never going to be satisfied with you wearing your dress a little bit shorter. They want you to throw it off. Put on men's garments. Or wear a miniskirt. Or whatever. You know, the world's never satisfied. Businesses will push you to work on the Lord's Day. And if you give in, they're going to push you more. That's the way it goes. You know, I've seen, I've seen you know, uh, 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 large ministries, quote-unquote, most of them parachurch, that have compromised to the world, and the world comes at them with a behemoth. And that compromise never ends. See, when the world and devil starts pushing at you and you move a little to appease them, they will only push harder. No, we are to be dead to the world. We should not be concerned whether we are right with the world. We need to be concerned whether we are right with God. And study to show ourselves proved unto God. We're to be alive unto Him. Third word is yield ye. Verse 13 he says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we're to yield ye. The word yield here means to present or show, to exhibit. Romans 12.1, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. So we're to present, and the idea of presenting there is to present, to show, as an exhibit. Because what God desires of us is living exhibits of our Lord. When Peter and John stood up before the Sanhedrin and said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They said, hmm. They took knowledge of them because they thought they were unlearned and ignorant men. But they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You see, what they were was exhibits of Christ. Because that's what Jesus would have done. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, and he says, You are epistles known and read of all men. It's like living words, living, moving words or letters from God, written and read or seen of all men. That's what God desires of us. We are to be living exhibits of instruments of righteousness for the Lord. The word instrument here is a military term. It speaks of weapons or arms of warfare. Instruments. We are actually, as when we yield to the Lord, we are instruments of warfare in this spiritual war against the world and the devil. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 7. The Bible says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, there's the approval of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And again, the armor there speaks of acts of right that would dispel darkness. Think of it this way. Every act or word of righteousness that you give is a wound to the enemy of souls. Now, acts of wrong do the opposite. Picture, if you will, men and women out there in the world, what they've done is build up defenses against the truth. The gates of hell, that's what they are. And the Bible tells us where to take the gospel against the gates of hell. And Jesus said those gates of hell not prevail against it. So we as instruments of righteousness... Pieces of warfare. We're to take the sword of the spirit and we're to go out, go out there and knock away the defenses. So every time you put out an act of righteousness to someone, you are bringing down their defenses. You're bringing down their defenses. 
an act of righteousness or a word of righteousness brings that defenses down a little bit. Now, it may not bring the law way down. But you know, you don't grow an oak tree in one day. People don't get saved very often, immediately. I remember when Brother Forney was here one time, he was teaching a class on, I think it was evangelism. And he had a graph, zero to 100. Zero was a person that never heard the gospel. A hundred was a person that accepted Christ, the Savior. He said, you may do something or speak a word to that person and move it to ten. What are you doing? You're bringing down their defenses against the gospel. That the world and the devil have built up in their life. And somebody else may come along and speak another word or do another act of kindness or an act of righteousness, and it may move it to 15. It may, it may take years or it may take months or it will take a period of time to move them along and to bring down their defenses through acts of righteousness, a witness of testimony from us. Because we are the instruments of righteousness. And by acting Rightly and speaking of righteousness, we are disarming them of their defenses. But when we compromise the truth, you know what we're doing? We're helping to build up those defenses. In Matthew 5.16, the Bible says, Let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works, your acts of righteousness. And glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Our reference, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, where Paul said, You Corinthians are epistles known and read of all men. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. You see, they became instruments of righteousness. They took the sword of the Spirit. And we're to take the sword of the Spirit out there in the world. And to dis- we are like Samuel took the king Adag and he hewed him to pieces. We're to destroy and break down by acts of righteousness, kindness, mercy, and, and do- just doing what is right. And, and being a witness and words of, of, of righteousness. And, and by doing that, we... we Break down their defenses. You know why the world is so obstinate against Christianity today? Because so much of it is false. I mean, we have churches that, are, that, that support drinking, dancing, immorality, ordaining homosexuals, and they call themselves churches. They're just like the world. 
And the world says, we're no different than us. Because everybody in their conscience knows that sodomy is a sin. It's not natural. Everybody in their conscience knows that abortion is killing an unborn. Now, they may say they don't believe that, but they weren't born that way. Because they were born with a conscience. And the conscience tells them that's, that's wrong. But see, now we need to be, we need to yield ourselves unto God as instruments of righteousness unto God. Because we are in an army. We're in a warfare. We're involved in a spiritual warfare. You know, there's the kingdom of God. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of these, I'm going to start a series of matches on on the church and the kingdom of God and the distinction there. You know, we are in the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan and they're at war with each other. You know, I think it's Henry Morris wrote, wrote a book called The Long War Against God. Ever since man uh, sinned in the Garden of Eden, there has been a long war against God in this world. And so we're at war with the devil and the world. Now, we don't further our cause with bloodshed. We further it with the truth of the word of God. And it has great power. We just need to wield the sword. It will work. But we're to yield our bodies as instruments. Just like Jesus yielded himself to the death on the cross, we're to yield our bodies and baptism is a symbol of us yielding our bodies as an instrument of righteousness. You know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege for us to be an instrument in the army of the Lord. We shouldn't consider it a burden. You know, we, we, in, we appreciate what our military has done. And we should. We should honor our military. But you know what? But we are in a battle that has much greater impact than any military in the world. Because that's temporal. This war is eternal, has eternal consequences. And so, as we think about baptism, it pictures death to self, resurrecting to new life, yielded as an instrument of righteousness unto God. Are you yielded to him tonight? Are you allowing him to use your life as an instrument of righteousness? By doing so, you can have eternal impact in the lives of people. Let's pray.